Well, this is the 18th lesson that we've taken from Moses' experience in building a holy nation. And uh, although I believe we could continue for months and years, um, I believe that it's time now to, after a few more sessions on Moses, we're going to start to drill down into the matter of personal holiness. Because if we're building uh, something holy, we need to be consistently pursuing personal holiness ourselves, each, each one of us. I just want to read uh, a passage from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so in a few weeks, we're going to change our focus and start to think about personal holiness. Um, and uh, obviously, you can see how important it is uh, for our individual pursuit of holiness uh, if we collect collectively are trying to build something holy. But for now, I'm going to continue with um, the experience of Moses in building something holy, a holy nation. And I'm going to say it's going to be a difficult lesson because it's going to call us to break out of our comfort zone. I want to suggest to you that to build something holy, God is going to ask us from time to time to defy reason. Defy reason. And this is so hard for us because we are so married to the idea that good decisions, the right decision, proper behaviors come out of good reasoning. In other words, in order to, to, for us to choose to do something, we have to be convinced that it makes sense that it's reasonable, it stands to reason. But when you look at scripture and what God requires of those who are serious about pursuing holiness and building something holy, personal reason sometimes has very little to do with it. And so this will be a hard lesson a challenging lesson for each of us because it is to abandon what we've always been taught, what we naturally do, and that is to lean on our own understanding. Now I want you to hear what I am saying, not what I am not saying. I want you to hear what I am saying, not what I am not saying. Scripture teaches us that we are created in the image of God. In theology, we read about the communicable characteristics or attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. What is meant by this is that some of God's attributes 
He shares with us because we are created in his image. We don't possess those attributes like he does, but we do possess them in part. Things like wisdom and goodness and patience, we we possess those, but not like God. We are not as good as God. We're not as patient as God. We're not as wise as God. Those are communicable attributes of God. He shares them with us. There are also incommunicable attributes of God, such as God pre-existed the creation of this world and will always exist. We don't share that. We had a moment when we were created. We started. He never started. We will live for eternity as he will live for eternity. But we had a starting point. God never did. God is omnipresent. That means that God is everywhere all the time. We are not everywhere all the time. God is all-powerful. We are not all-powerful. So there are certain attributes of God that he has shared with us and others that he hasn't shared with us. He can't because we are only built, created in the image of God. Reason, reason is one of God's communicable attributes. It's kind of like knowledge. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We just know in part, as Scripture says. Our reasoning is the same. We've been given reason to navigate our lives safely and wisely. But we do not possess all of the other attributes of God that contribute to his reasoning. His reasoning is not our reasoning. (laughs) There are times in the process of pursuing holiness when he will call on us to trust his superior reasoning and deny our inferior reasoning. So this is not a message about discarding your God-given ability to reason. In fact, so much of Scripture appeals to us to use our God-given gift of reason. But it is a message about not being limited or exclusively using our own understanding and to be open to God's superior reasoning as he sees fit. As Isaiah wrote the words of God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes God is going to say, I see the bigger picture. (laughs) I know where we're going with this. You're just going to have to trust me on this. As a matter of fact, your reasoning might be saying, this isn't a good idea. But you're going to have to trust me on this. You're going to have to count on the fact that I'm God, 
and my reasoning is superior to your reasoning. Our scripture today is Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. Exodus 17, 8 to 16. And the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. This wasn't like a half hour. This is a full day long experience of battle. And Moses had to keep his hand raised. And when he got tired, they said, here, sit on this stone. And they came alongside and they kept his hands elevated. The staff of God was elevated. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Reason had nothing to do with this victory. <laughs> there was no great military strategy employed by the Israelites. There's nothing reasonable about an old man holding a staff in the air to win a battle. They don't teach it at RMC. They don't teach it at West Point. Get an old man, give him a staff, let him stand on the hill, and you'll win the battle. There's nothing reasonable about what God asked the Israelites to do that day. In fact, when you weigh in the fact that people's lives, like real lives, hung in the balance, from a reasonable perspective, you could say, God, you are being negligent, unwise, foolish. This is nonsense. It's just wrong. What do you think you're doing? It doesn't stand to reason. And yet, as the text records, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever, can you imagine the responsibility? <laughs> when his arm dropped down, the Amalekites were killing guys. But when you think about it, this unreasonable approach to building something holy is not a one-off the Israelites were freed from Egypt by doing what? Painting blood 
on the doorposts. Their Israels drank spring water out of a what? A rock by striking. The Israelites looked on a dead snake on a pole to survive the lethal venom that was killing them. The Israelites marched around the fortress of Jericho seven days and then yelled, and the fortress collapsed. None of this makes sense. None of this is reasonable. God repeatedly asked Israel to do unreasonable things in the building of a holy nation. Why? I mean, why? Think about it. Why doesn't God just enable the Israelites to defeat the enemy without requiring Moses raise the staff? He could have, right? Well, what's that about? Why doesn't God just slay the firstborn of Egypt without requiring the Israelites to paint their doorposts with blood? Why didn't God just provide water from a stone without having to strike it with a staff? Why didn't God heal the bitten Israelites without having to look on a snake on a pole? Why didn't God collapse the walls of Jericho without this big noisy parade? Well, I see two reasons. Number one, God enlists our token participation. God enlists our token participation as a demonstration of our willingness to trust and obey God. That's what we talked about last week. So he enlists our participation just to show that we are trusting him. And hey, we got to do something <laughs> to prove that. It's not enough. We've said that last week. It's not enough to just say I trust God. You have to do something. So an old guy, Moses, has to keep his arm up. You have to walk in circles for seven days and then blow horns and make noise. you got to do something to prove that you trust God. And so God asks us to do things. But secondly, God wants there to be no question that the positive outcome cannot be explained in any other way than it was God. There's no question. When people walk around in circles, and I'm sure a scientist today would try to come up with some geological explanation of walking around a building seven times somehow creates a fissure in the earth. But no, it's foolishness. Walking around seven times is trusting in God, and God gets the credit. It's only God. Walking around in circles is token. But we're called to do that because God wants to get the credit. So this leads to two questions. One, as we obey God's call to build a holy church, should we expect God to ask us to take steps that defy reason? Let me say it again. As we obey God's call to build a holy church, should we expect God to ask us to take steps that defy reason? In other words, is this experience of Moses building a holy nation applicable to us? Or was that then and this is now? The second question is, 
If it is applicable to us, how are we to apply that lesson in building the Holy Church? And so just to summarize, is it applicable? And if so, how? I'm getting perilously close to an argument and a discussion that I would love to have at some point with our church. But now's not the time except to say this. I'm not going to today plant my flag in the rich soil of either cessationism or continuationism. Big words. Actually, I don't even think they are words. I think the old theologians made that up. Cessationism, John Piper will explain. I'll just read what he says. Cessationists believe that the so-called revelatory, revelatory gifts of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, things like prophecy, prophecy, speaking in tongues and interpretation, ceased, cessationists, ceased sometime between the death of the apostles and the confirmation of the New Testament canon. Continuationists believe that all the gifts of the Spirit listed in these chapters are still meant to continue more or less according to the Sovereign Spirit's purpose throughout the church age. You see, some people believe that some of the stuff that we attribute to sort of supernaturalism, you know, like people speaking in another language, when they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, some people believe that has ceased to exist. They are called cessationalists. They also believe that they're, you know, someone couldn't in a service such as this stand up and say something and then say, thus saith the Lord. They are cessationalists. There are continuationalists who would say, it's all in play still. Yeah, you can speak in tongues. That's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the gifts. It's in there. It's in the Bible. And so it stands, stands to reason. So I, I know that I'm getting perilously close to this sort of idea right now. And I'm not going there today. Maybe another day. But for now, I, wanna, I do want to say this. I believe that within a holy church, both cessationalists and continuationalists can harmoniously coexist. And as a matter of fact, if we went around and asked your opinion right now, you'd be shocked at how many cessationalists there are and how many continuists there are. And some of you haven't made up your mind. You should get on that. Because it's in the scriptures. No evangelical church, though, <laughs> worth its salt, would deny that God still does supernatural things through his church. I'll say that again. No evangelical church worth its salt, and that usually means who believes in the Bible, would deny that God still does supernatural, powerful miracles through his church. 
And so I'm not getting into tongues. I'm not getting into prophecy. I'm not getting into that stuff. But I am getting into the fact that God will call us to defy reason and we will see things that can only be ascribed to God. Only. And that's supernatural, right? People say that's God showing up. And that will happen. So, my answer to that first question, do I believe that the miracles, the acts of God, the signs and wonders that Israel experienced apply to us today? Yes, absolutely. Who am I to put a God in a box and say, well, you only can do this much because we thought about it. We had, a, we had a committee on that, and we decided you can't. We can't do that to God. God is God. <laughs> right? And so he is going to ask us from time to time to do things that don't make sense. And then when something incredible happens, something supernatural happens, he will get all the glory, not us. So yes, I believe that with all my heart. Now there is a caveat, and I do want to say this too. And this time I'm going to quote from my other theological good guy, Wayne Grudem. Quote, there is nothing inappropriate to seeking miracles for the proper purposes for which they are given by God. To confirm the truthfulness of the gospel message is one, right? The apostles were preaching the gospel and to prove its validity, they saw miracles happen, right? So to confirm the gospel message, to bring help to those in need, people are sick. Are you praying that Larry and Marianne are healed, are delivered? Can you imagine Can you imagine? And I, you know, it's not the first time, folks. It can happen. <laughs> you know, we, Colin and I had a neighbor across the street, you know, barely Christian, he's free Methodist. So <laughs> he's a great guy, you know? He was, he was given two weeks. He was full of cancer. He's alive today. Not a single stitch of cancer. He prayed. His church prayed. It happens. <laughs> right? So it can happen. Right? Do you believe that? So to, to help people that are in need, to remove hindrances to people's ministries, you know, there's, there's these people that are, are, are going to try to sue us and bring us to our knees. <laughs> God, get rid of those people. Do you believe that God would, could do that? And to bring glory to God? <laughs> yeah. And so it's not inappropriate to seek miracles for the proper reasons. But to chase after miracles and the supernatural and signs and wonders as an end in itself 
to get kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like bloodthirsty. Some people get so caught up in this stuff that that's all they want to see. That's what they need in order for their relationship with God to be good. They need to see miracles and signs and wonders all the time. That's a problem. That is inappropriate. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not what it's about. That's not part of those purposes for the gospel, for, for helping people in need, for removing hindrances to ministries, for bringing glory to God. That's just like, that's an amusement. That's a curiosity. So yes, I believe absolutely that God can do the supernatural as we defy reason and do the things that he asked us to do. Which brings me to the second question, how? How are we to apply this truth in our church experience? Well, first of all, we're, like I said, we're not chasing after that stuff, right? It's God might choose to ask us to step out in faith and do something just doesn't make sense. It's unreasonable. Are you willing to do that? You see, our mission is very clear. Every church's mission is the same. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our mission is very clear. I don't know how we're doing that. I don't really want to think about it. I don't want to test on it right now. It's like the kid in school promised to do better. I think that's where this church is at right now. We want to do better. <laughs> we want to do better with the Great Commission. But we want to make disciples. That means experience conversions through sharing our faith with others. And we want them to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. So as we wholeheartedly commit to that commission, we need to have open minds to what God may ask us to do to accomplish that mission. We have to accept that on occasion, or perhaps regularly, God will ask us to put our reason on the shelf and simply trust in his superior reasoning. If we refuse, now listen to this, if we refuse to obey him because what he is asking us doesn't make sense, how can we expect to be different? How can we expect to be holy? How can we expect to be set apart? You're no different than anybody else. That's what holiness is. Different. Godly. How can we expect to be unique? Let's face it, the world is full of churches that claim to be holy, but choose to live safely within the lines of their own understanding. And we have applauded these churches. We have lifted them up and say they are well-governed. They have godly people in charge. They make wise decisions. How often do we say those people did something that didn't make sense? And God turned that community upside down. How often do you hear that? 
that's what I want. We are called to a different path. Now, two Sundays from now, we're going to begin to tackle this question. This is the question. If our mission is the Great Commission, how do we see, or how do you see, our church pursuing this mission? We're going to have a different church service that day. We're going to, we're going to sing some songs and worship and glorify God because he is worthy of it. But we're also going to listen to each other. I'll facilitate a discussion. I wish we were in smaller groups, but we're not going to be. <laughs> but I am trusting each and every one of you to pray until that day. Ask God. God, we want to fulfill your great commission. How do you want New Glasgow Christian Church to fulfill that mission? Because there's a word for that. It's called vision. That will become our vision. And so in two weeks, we will start the process. We will discuss together what you see God saying. Do not rely on your own reason. <laughs> okay? Allow God to surprise you. Allow God to speak to you in a way in which you say, I never thought of that. And what might actually make you feel a little uncomfortable because you're used to just depending upon reason to make good decisions, not tapping into his unreasonable and superior reason. The answer to that question will become our vision. It will affect everything that we do as a church, from the activities we engage in and when, and how to manage our resources, everything. So please pray. On Wednesday nights, we're going to start praying again. Not again, but, you know, we've already had lots of prayer sessions leading up to the AGM, but we're going to continue with prayer sessions. And so on when, every other Wednesday who knows for how long we're going to continue to pray because we really do want to do this as a leadership. If our mission is the Great Commission, how do you see our church pursuing this mission? <laughs> if you hear yourself say, well, that's not reasonable, say, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. God might want you to... <laughs> You might want you to be thinking reasonably. But don't exclusively think reasonably. That's just what God is calling us to. We said we want to be holy, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Or maybe not. <laughs> I'm sure some of us haven't decided on that yet. I know your leadership has. They want to be holy. They want to be set apart. They want to be different. They want to be unique. They don't want to depend on their own reason. They want to be led of God. And if God says, go stand on a hill, put your staff up in the air, we'll do it. Because we want to see God glorified and we want to see people say, oh man, there must be something to this God thing. 
Nothing else could explain what's going on in that church. Nothing. All right. I'd like you to prepare for communion. I'm on schedule for communion today, too. If you have a problem with what I just said, you should not participate in what you're about to participate in. Because you know what? What we do every day on Sunday, taking bread and taking wine, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Bible says so. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? Those who are denying Christ, it's foolishness. That's nonsense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through the wisdom did not, through its wisdom did not know him. That's how wise the world is. God himself incarnated, lived amongst men, and they didn't recognize him. How wise is that? Talk about foolishness. I'm no different. I wouldn't have either. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach, listen to this, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You can see why I wanted to do communion at the end of that sermon. Every Sunday we come here, we participate, we celebrate something that most of the world thinks is nonsense. How can Christ be so great if he couldn't get himself off the cross. That's what they accused him of, right? Hey, if you're Christ, if you're, if you're something special, get down off of that cross. That stands to reason that he could do that. He could definitely get off that cross, right? If he was God. But Jesus didn't do it. It's foolish. Every week celebrating broken flesh and spilt blood is unreasonable in the world's mind. But we do it. We love to do it. Because we know that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we can trust and know that by participating in this, we are speaking to something that has fundamentally changed our lives. 
We were dead, now we're alive. We were lost, now we are found. We were blind, and now we see. This is real. And so we do this silly thing. We eat bread. We eat saltine crackers. <laughs> we don't even drink wine, we drink juice. Welch's, it's good stuff. But we do that because we know that it is the path to our salvation. It is the path to our life. It speaks to the moment that Christ defeated sin for us, defeated death for us, for me, for you. God did that on the cross. Jews hated it. How could our Messiah be crucified? How humiliating. That's humiliating. The Gentiles said, how could greatness come from such mockery? (laughs) Our lives are built on something that this world sees as nonsense as unreasonable. And so, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, his flesh was torn apart, he bled, If you believe that that process of Christ dying a humiliating death is the power of God to save you and make you right with God, I I would encourage you to participate. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and, and said, this is my body. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later on, do this regularly. Keep, keep, keep it up, <laughs> right? And so uh, he said, this is my body. He gave thanks, and then they ate. So let's give thanks. Lord, thank you that you are superior to us. You are all-knowing. This makes total sense in your big plan of redemption for the world. And when we one day see how you thought through all of this and and you explain it to us and we're living in your presence, we will understand even more clearly. And so thank you, Lord, for the bread, which is significant because it represents your body. Take and eat. And then he took the wine.
at the end of the supper, actually. He passed the cup around. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it and do it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for coming to earth, for leaving your throne in glory. Thank you for living as you did as a servant to teach us how to live ourselves. Thank you for your willingness to obey the Father's command and to die on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that in more ways than just this way, that we would open our mind to the fact that what you're doing in this place and with this ministry might not make sense. It might, you might be calling us to defy our own reason but Lord, help us to be willing to do that. Help us to have hearts that would say anything, Lord. Anything that you ask us to do, we will do. And prepare our hearts for two weeks from this Sunday when we'll start to share what God, you, have been speaking to us about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for coming to church.